0: Merry Christmas, and uh, if you're hearing that for uh, today, on a day like today, uh, December 26th, you're thinking, well, yesterday was Christmas. Uh, Aren't we done with that? Actually, no. Uh, Let's think about the 12 days of Christmas. Uh, Not like the song, but the concept. Historically, the followers of Christ would uh, have been in a season called Advent, a season of darkness, a season of lament, a season of wondering, God, have you forgotten us? Uh, The scriptures have been asking those Advent questions like, How long, O Lord? Have you forgotten us, O Lord? And even Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, So uh, all of that Advent would lead us to finally Christmas morning, which was yesterday, where we celebrate Christ's birth. And then for the next 12 days, followers of Christ throughout history have been celebrating Christmas season all the way up until January the 6th. Uh, which is the season of Epiphany, uh, where the Magi, those kings, visited this Christ, this Savior, uh, born and offered gifts to him. Well, today we're in the book of Luke. If you've been following with us in this journey through scripture, we find ourselves in the book of Luke. And Luke's gospel is around uh, early 60s AD. And so as he's writing, Nero is the Roman emperor at the time. Uh, that's a hyperlink. You should go back, and if you're not familiar with Nero and the tyranny and the utter chaos and brutality of the Roman Emperor um, and the Roman Empire, for that matter, I invite you to go back and, and brush up on your world history. Um, at the time of Jesus' birth, uh, it's Caesar Augustus who's, who's the Roman Emperor, and uh, Luke records that for us in chapter 2, perhaps yesterday. Uh, You, I know my family did, we read the Christmas story, something we try to do every year, and uh, there in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. That's intriguing, isn't it? That's intriguing, isn't it? Jerusalem, uh, the entire Middle East, all of northern Africa, all of Europe was under Roman control. (laughs) Therefore, caesar augustus ordered that even someone like mary and joseph go and be uh, part of the census well let me uh try to display what's unique about the gospel according to luke uh, we've said that there's the gospel according to matthew mark luke and the next week uh, we will not be meeting by the way january the second sunday it's it's off uh we're just taking a rest uh, as a church and so on january 9th we'll be looking at gospel according to john but uh, let me just try to display some unique features of Luke, gospel according to Luke. And the first one is that Luke is a physician. The, the other gospel writers are not physicians. And as a physician, he's, he's writing as a historian. And he is a co-traveler and co-laborer with a missionary named Paul. That's who Luke is. Uh, second unique feature of Luke is this is a unified two-volume work. Luke is the author of the Gospel according to Luke, and he's also the author of Acts. So one should read Luke and then go right into the book of Acts to continue that reading. So Luke ends, and Acts begins with Jesus explaining that God's kingdom is going to go outside of Israel. It's going to go to the nations, and it's going to happen by the empowering and indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what connects those two books together is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Another unique feature is fulfillment. That's what's unique about Luke's gospel. He wants us to understand that Christ has fulfilled all of the messianic promises in the Old Testament. An example, Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is standing up in the temple and is given a scripture to read that day in front of the people's hearing, as was custom in the temple, Guess where Jesus uh, read from? Isaiah chapter 61. And Isaiah chapter 61 says, as Jesus would have been reading, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and freedom for prisoners, new sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. And then Jesus said, today in your presence, scripture is fulfilled. And some would have believed, and some would have said, blasphemy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, The next thing is, um, there's the social implications of the kingship of Jesus. Luke underscores social implications about King Jesus. King Jesus is not just a spiritual being that gives us some sort of spiritual peace with ourselves, but there are social implications. Um, And uh, I'll cite how Luke and Jesus, for that matter, there's an inclusion of women. There's a unique inclusion of women. Um, Significant points in Jesus' life, such as his birth and his resurrection. Who is it that are called to go and be the witnesses of that good news that they see? It's women. The very first evangelist, uh, the very first people that see that that there's an empty tomb, it's women. Luke wants us to see that Mary is the first disciple of Christ. Mary is the first Christian, as it were. And Mary is the only person present at both Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. She's the only disciple among all of them that was present at both birth and resurrection. Now, this is literally revolutionary. Meaning, in first century, no other literature would have placed women in a In a position of prominence in a narrative or a story or a historical setting. They just wouldn't have done it. Women weren't viewed as having any type of credence or you shouldn't believe in what they say. And uh, the New Testament's focus on women in the story is one of the reasons to believe in its reliability. It's true. God includes women in this beautiful way, there's an inclusion of the poor. Inclusion of the poor. And the the Greek and Hebrew word for this is, is much broader than a category of people that don't have much money. That's how we as English speakers or Americans may view the word poor. But Luke is referring to this word poor as people of low social status. It's a broad category. We don't need to truncate it into those that just don't have money. But it included things like disabilities. People um, like children, women, elderlies, uh, social outsiders. People whose lifestyle choices that place them outside of religious circles. Those are poor people, according to scripture. Another unique feature is, is the meal settings. There's all sorts of meals. If you love food, I love food. You'll love the book of Luke. There's lots of meals happening in this book. They're going from one setting to the next, and there's some 13 different Meals going on. There's intimate meals that Jesus is having with his disciples. There's miraculous meals like feeding of thousands that Jesus does by multiplying loaves and fishes. There's also uh, meals of contrasting uh, banquets. It's like Jesus is there with these religious leaders and he's debating with them over these meals. And he confronts their hypocrisy over these meals. Another unique feature is the danger of riches. Not having riches, not even being blessed with riches, but the danger of loving those riches. Luke focuses in on this. Uh, and he he uh, teaches on money, possessions, generosity, and he uh, focuses on how following Christ is believing in God's provision. And the more we are in touch with God's provision, it it should produce a minimalist mentality and a a heart of generosity for others who don't have. And then there are these unique parables here, the Good Samaritan, which is chapter 10, the, the Great Banquet, chapter 14, and the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or what we refer to as the prodigal son, there in chapter 15. And so Jesus is encountering uh, blind people, sick people, Samaritans, which are historically enemies of, of Jewish people, Zacchaeus, who's heading up the tax collecting for the Jewish, uh, for the Romans, and they encounter Jesus, all these people in these parables, and their lives are changed. Their lives are transformed, and they become followers of Christ. And then another unique feature is he gets resistance from the religious leaders, and it's ramped up. Almost every page you're turning in the gospel according to Luke, there's resistance from the religious leaders. Um, their religious tradition, their social stability is threatened. They're afraid of this Jesus. And so they begin to accuse him of blaspheming against God. They accuse him of being a drunk. And they accuse him with hanging out and spending time with disreputable people. Sinners. Sinners like you and like me. Uh, there are unique narratives that are only found in the book of Luke. One is the penitent thief on the cross. Perhaps you're familiar with that one that we talk about during Linton and the Easter season. There are uh, two others there hanging on crosses there at Jesus' crucif- own, own crucifixion. And one is a thief. And um, he is crying out to Jesus Save me, have have mercy on me, remember me. And Jesus looks upon him with mercy and says, today you will be with me in paradise. That's unique according to Luke's gospel. Another one is uh, the road to Emmaus story. This one's interesting. There are two disciples who are traveling along on this road to Emmaus. And all of a sudden, Jesus, after Jesus rises from the dead, Jesus physically appears to them. And they don't recognize him. And so they just start telling Jesus the story about Jesus. Hey, he was supposed to be the king. He was supposed to redeem Israel, but he died. And they're all sad and everything. And then this Jesus, who's mysteriously walking with them, whom they don't recognize, he sits down with them for a meal and he breaks bread with them. And all of a sudden, their eyes are opened because they remembered how Jesus had done that at the Passover meal with them. And then suddenly Jesus disappeared from their scene. One last uh, unique narrative is in Luke chapter 24. It's the last chapter as well as found in the first chapter of Acts. Uh, And that is the narrative of the ascension of Christ. Christ ascends. Christ leaves this physical earth and ascends and is enthroned on high where he is now praying for you. That's what scripture says. Where is Jesus and what is he up to? He's enthroned on high right now, praying for you, day and night. He pulled an all-nighter last night for you, praying for you. That's great news at Christmas. Uh, let's get into a sample passage. So we're um, gonna look at Luke chapter one, verses 26 through 38. I'll read it for us. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin and the angel departed from her. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Any Beatles fans out there? Any Beatles fans listening right now? Uh, You may know this or not, but one of uh, Paul McCartney's greatest songs that he ever wrote came from Luke, chapter one, verse 38. I just read it. Perhaps you recognized it. Let it be. Let it be. He's inspired by this verse here. Paul McCartney is. And in my hour of darkness, I won't sing this. And maybe you can sing it if you'd like. But, and in my hour of darkness, she's standing there in front of me speaking words of wisdom. Let it be. Mary teaches us that in times of trouble, that's what Christmas really is. God is coming into trouble. God condescends and comes into this earth. Mary is teaching us that for Christmas, faith? Faith is saying, let it be to me according to your word. Not resignation, let it be. Not fatalism, let it be. But trusting in the face of not seeing how and not seeing when, let it be. Embracing whatever God is going to send your way, let it be. Martin Luther one of the great uh, reformers there in Germany around the Protestant Reformation time wrote about this very passage and this very phrase that we're looking at this morning. He says, This young woman had a faith of which there's no equal in the Bible. So I want to look at a few things about Mary this morning. I want you to try to get in the mindset of this perhaps 13, 14 year old young woman. The first thing that we notice in the text here is there's undeserved favor that she's given. Undeserved favor. Verse 28 says, Greetings, favored one. Now there was controversy in the Middle Ages about what made Mary so favored. The Church of Rome says that she was basically holier than thou, she's deserving of being called favored because she was so holy. And then the Protestant reformers came along saying, no, she's actually, and all of us are actually able to experience a favor from God based on undeserved merit. It's called grace, the grace of God. It's nothing that you and I do, but it's God bestows his favor upon you by his grace. She's a lowly woman living in a lowly village, basically from nowheresville, Uh, from a no-name family, and this is a picture of the gospel, that if God can remember someone in that state, if the very Son of God can come through this person, God can come to me. God can come to you at Christmas, especially when we feel undeserving. What, someone like me? Mary must have been thinking. Greetings, favored one. Everyone in her village would not have been thinking she was favored. Can you imagine the rumors? Can you imagine what people in that small town that most likely would be talking, would most likely be spreading words of gossip about her past? Was she promiscuous? She's not even married. What will pregnancy look like for this woman? Mary? Shame is the answer. Shame. Shame. She would have been shamed. I'm, I'm certain of it in that culture and in that small town and yet she's being told that God's favor is upon her. And what she does here with this undeserved favor is she accepts God's word over her rather than other people's word over her. It's called reputation management. It's what you and I struggle with. I wonder what somebody thinks about me. I wonder if somebody knows my record. Those people that gossip Those people that may slander us and uh, maybe, look what a mess I've made of myself. I'm such a rotten person. Mary receives God's word over her, over your own self-loathing. Maybe over your own self-hatred. Or maybe it's over your own uh, arrogant pride. Hey, look how great I am. Look what a good life I've been living. Look how great I've managed everything in my life. Mary receives undeserved favor. And that's a Christmas invitation for me and you both. To receive undeserved favor from God. It's the undeserved miracle of Christmas. That God can come into our lives tomorrow again afresh. The next day afresh. Because of his undeserved favor. Not our gender, not our age, not our family, not our possessions, but God with me. God in me because of undeserved favor. The next thing we see is stout doubt. Yeah, Christmas faith leads to stout doubt. Wait a minute. Did you say we ought to be doubting during Christmas? Well, Mary does. Mary's doubting. It's like healthy doubt. Verse 29, it says, Mary was greatly troubled. Look at it with me. Look at verse 20. She doesn't tell the angels, Yay, great. All right, you angels are wonderful. Thanks for this good news. She's greatly troubled at this news. It says she tries to discern what these words meant. This is a Greek way, uh, originally written in Greek. This phrase means to take audit. She is mentally, she is intellectually, emotionally, she's engaged with this. She's not just having blind faith. She's, as I'm seeing, having stout doubt. She's understanding a healthy doubt, an interaction with God, where there truly is questions being asked of God. That's faith. Stout doubt can actually lead to a deeper faith. Mary is teaching us here. And there's a tendency, I believe, for modern people to have what C.S. Lewis referred to as chronological snobbery, where we look at people, uh, everyone in ancient times, as if they had some lower IQ than us modern people do. Mary had the same IQ that we did. Mary is just modeling what it looks like to interact with God, to have doubt, to ask those questions, to be real and honest about her faith. And that's a word of encouragement for us. She's processing. And there's this misconception among most people that it's secular people who doubt and religious people don't doubt. Have you ever heard that argument from most people? And the misconceptions continue among our Christian friends who say you shouldn't doubt, you should just believe. And the misconceptions continue among our secular friends which tell us, hey, all smart people doubt. We can have doubt, and sometimes that doubt leads us to a stronger faith. Luke 2, as the story progresses from this text we're looking at, it says that Mary pondered these things in her heart. She was still thinking about them. She was accepting them, but she was pondering them in her heart and in her mind. And it's, it's choosing to meet your fear and my fear with the promises of God. That's what stout doubt looks like. That's what true faith, doubting but yet truly believing, our anxiety, our fear is met with God's promises to us. Uh, verse 34 She says, How can such things be? I'm a virgin. She's been to sex ed class, obviously. She knows something. She knows I'm a virgin. And I don't know about conversations you're having with different people, whether they be Christian or non-followers of Christ, about this virgin birth of Christ and how hard that is to believe. I find that very challenging to believe personally. But you know who else finds that hard to believe? Mary. Mary finds this hard to believe. Mary is struggling with the virgin birth. How is she going to explain this? Put yourself in her shoes, her sandals. How in the world is she, how is she going to understand, how is she going to explain this? Uh, well, the Holy Spirit is going to impregnate me. Who? And he told me that I was going to conceive the most high God. Joseph, her fiancé, didn't even understand what this was. Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew, records of Joseph that he was going to put her away quietly. He didn't understand what God was doing until God had to reveal to him what God was up to and doing. I mean, the virgin birth, it just seems physiologically impossible. And that takes us into verse 37, what the angel's trying to say to her. Look at it with me. Verse 37 says, Nothing will be impossible with God. In your mind, things are impossible for you and for me as we try to sort ourselves through the week or, hey, what's coming up next? And how is this going to go down? Or how's it all going to work out? And God is saying, Nothing will be impossible with me. C.S. Lewis called Christmas the grand miracle. It's the grand miracle. That God can come into the world any way he chooses. He chose to do it in this way. Why? I don't know. I just wanting us to see that God comes into a, a manger. Dirt on the floor. Manure on the floor. Blood on the floor. That's what God comes into. Yeah, but if God was powerful, someone argues, couldn't, couldn't there have been room in the inn? Why, why didn't he just come into the inn? Uh, yeah, God could have made there to be an extra room in the inn. If he can make a baby show up in a womb, he can, he can make a room in an inn. But chose, mysteriously, stopped out, mysteriously chose to show up in a manger. The third thing we learn from Mary is sweet surrender. Sweet surrender. What is surrender? It's not not naivete. She's no no naive fool here. She's thoughtful. She's not gullible. What surrender is, is she's taking her life off of her hands. That's That's what this means. Verse 31. When Gabriel says, You shall call his name Jesus. Mary knew that something was up. Parents name their children, do they not? Don't parents spend months and perhaps years and even some names are just passed on? Mary knows something is up when she's not even getting to be the one that names this child. Gabriel's telling her what the name of this child will be. And it's a lesson for us here that when this child comes into your life, Mary, you don't name him. You don't call the shots. God's in control. And when Jesus comes into our life, we're not the authority. There's the Christmas lesson for us. When this Christ, Emmanuel, Messiah, King comes into your life, my life, it's a reminder, I'm not in charge. Take my hands off my life, as hard as that may be. It's sweet surrender. It's surrendering, Trust does not mean understanding. Trust is believing in God, even though I don't understand. How do we submit? How do we surrender? We follow the model of Christ. We follow the model of Christ. Jesus became a vulnerable servant, tortured his death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll remember Christ's words, where he says, I don't want this, Father. But I'm your servant. Let it be to me. Let it be to me according to your word. I surrender. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Dorothy Sayers uh, was an English crime writer and poet. And she writes these words. The incarnation means that God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine." God can ask nothing from us that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it all well worthwhile. God can relate. Christ himself surrenders to the mysterious good plan of God. This is uh, verse 38 again. This just as we started today. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. When she'd be misunderstood and gossiped about, let it be. When Joseph, her husband, who would die years later, just as Christ is going into his public ministry, and she was alone, let it be. When she saw Jesus perform his first miracle, let it be. When she saw her son being crucified, let it be. To me, according to your word. And so for Christmas, us here, the days going forward, not only in these 12 days of Christmas, but in the rest of our days, let us trust God with this type of faith, receiving undeserved favor of God, having stout or healthy doubt, and then us having sweet surrender. But we say, let it be. And even learning to sing these lyrics, let it be. Let's pray that right now for ourselves and for others. Father God, as we hear these words, Lord, you know how hard and chaotic it is to live here where we live, where death and disease are such brutal thieves, and so we cry out to you. Give us the grace to say and to learn to sing, let it be to me according to your word. Pray all this in your powerful name, Lord Christ, amen.